I said I'd talk about Season 7 here. I actually don't have much to say, but the overall construction of the season is kind of unique. The first half is mostly Anywhere episodes. Episodes that, while they kind of follow an overall thread, they mostly don't. There's a few tidbits of information and inferences that kind of basically build the backdrop of what will be the series finale, the nine-parter nine that goes through the end there. But for the most part, it's just, here's another episode. What was happening, <clears throat> I think I've already mentioned this because this already happened in season six, but what was happening was Rick Berman basically reached out to Ira Stephen Barron and was like, just, just do whatever, dude. This is your last season, make it count. And Ira Stephen Barron's like, well, can I do anything, anything? And Berman's like, no, you can't destroy the Federation. Starts, Ira was like, okay, okay. <laughs> I know, there has to be a franchise after this, which is funny. Actually, because if you really sit and think about it, DS9 kind of ended the storyline of Star Trek in the areas we care about. Oh, Voyager would keep going, but we would only get tiny little bits of information from what's happening in the rest of, you know, the Alpha and Beta Quadrants when Voyager concluded. And yes, I know there's also Nemesis, but Nemesis barely did anything story-wise, let's just be honest. So, uh, yeah, this DS9's ter Terminus is effectively the end of modern Trek, at least until the Picard show comes out. Which it actually just occurred to me, by the time this episode goes live, the Picard show should be out. It'll be interesting to see where they go with that. Anyways. <clears throat> so they had kind of a carte blanche. Do whatever. So they decided to do things that at the time were considered pretty unusual. This episode being a good example of that. <sighs> One of these days, I haven't gotten a chance to, maybe I will by the time this video goes live, one of these days I want to do a stream series I call In-Depth Intros, and I want to just examine the beginnings of various video games and compare and contrast them to each other, and just really dig into them, like really fully in-depth analyze the pacing and the execution and the uh, story beats and the gameplay beats and what you can do where and when and how, because one of the most important parts of any video game is the intro. Um, and this is you know, this is a common concept. You have to have that intro. It has to accomplish several very specific things. The same is kind of true for a television show. The season finale has to be big, and the season opener has to be big. And this is just common knowledge. This is something that actually, even in modern television, which is a pretty completely different field than older television, still still adheres to. The idea that there has to be prong, uh, you know, to both conclude and end, to bring people in and keep people staying. So the idea to have a very quiet, subtle, just sort of another day in the life kind of a thing was actually rather unusual for the opener of Season 7. And yet if you're paying attention, this episode is entirely build-up. Everything that's happening in this episode is laying down foundation to be fulfilled in the next episode, and the next several episodes, really. So not only does it work, but it works very well because of the fact that it gives us a chance to breathe after the last episode, which if you were paying attention, and I, and I called this out in my video about it, it was very high-paced, very high-tension, very high-action, just go, 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 and lots of things happening all at the same time. Now, there's a lot of stuff happening in this episode, and indeed, this is something that's going to become kind of a more common format. For the most part, they're going to abandon the A-plot, B-plot format going forward for Season 7. Instead, it's going to be recurrent threads, which are all happening side by side, kind of like what they had happening back during the Dominion War 7-parter, which I've referenced a few times. 
Now, here, we're not actually there yet. We do have a few threads going on. We have Worf's thread, we have Kira's thread, and we have Cisco's thread. So we have three plots that we're kind of following the threads of throughout this episode, which will continue into next episode as well. So. <sighs> There's this nice little bit where Nog mentions that he prefers escort and convoy duty to, to open combat because it's safer. I'm only pointing that out because we're still not up to the big Nog episode, but more to the point, we're, we're after Valiant. Nog has had a taste of combat on the Defiant and on the Valiant, and if I'm being blunt, I'd be astonished if he wasn't suffering some kind of PTSD for what he went through. I mean, give me a break, right? I also, I'm trying to think out of phrases, I also like the fact that the first three tidbits are all about missing Cisco. How this cult of the paw wraith, which showed up out of nowhere, is kind of an issue, and how they just don't really know how to handle it, blah, blah, blah. It's, if only Cisco was here, right? <laughs> and I don't blame them. The man was a good leader, as I've pointed out several times. But he, he's having an existential crisis right now. He has no idea what he's doing or how to do it. Now, the camera pulls something very clever in this episode, in my opinion. It's a tiny little touch, but it helps to emphasize how de-emphasized Cisco has become. He went from being in charge of tactical operations for an entire fleet, one of the front men of the, of the war that's happening right now, the Great War, and point man for the Bajorans as the effective major figure of their religion, even more so than the local equivalent of the Pope, and in charge of Deep Space Nine on top of all that, and father and all those other roles he juggles. He goes from all that to being a guy that the camera avoids because he's just the background guy playing piano that some people probably don't even recognize. What I mean by that, it's just really nice that the camera starts over here and it zooms out, pans out, and then kind of goes under so you can't see Cisco's face and then just goes over to Joseph over there and him talking to his, his patrons. It's a nice bit because if that wasn't Cisco, if that wasn't, you know, you know Benjamin Cisco right there, that would be the exact same type of camera pan you would use in a scene like this. Thus, the emphasis is made clear. He's just a normal guy, basically an extra. It's only when we call attention to the fact that that's Cisco that then the camera's like, and it's like, oh. Helps to showcase the tone, really bringing it back down to earth, as I've said before. Then he has a vision. <laughs> Three months, and he hasn't had a vision. God, the prophets like to take their time, don't they? Although there has been an argument made that that's not the prophets giving him that vision. I'm going to bring that topic up more next episode. For now, all I'm going to say is, this is Captain Sisko, who's an adjutant to Commander Ross, who's in charge of Deep Space Nine, and he has been basically AWOL for three months. Now, the episodes, to my knowledge, will never acknowledge this. But for all intents and purposes, Cisco has effectively resigned his commission here. They're in the middle of a war. They're in the middle of THE war. In fact, they're in the middle of a TOTAL war, to use a specific terminology. And he has just decided to take three months off? I am amazed they didn't bring up that at some point or another. But anyways, I'm getting off topic. Uh, 
I'm going to pause the Cisco plot for a second. Let's talk about the Wharf plot. So, first of all, we see another musical. One minute, 43 seconds. Okay. Um, I, I, I don't have much to add to that. It's just they're still doing the whole musicals thing. I, I'm starting to feel like it's a little bit of deliberate padding to try and make the episode runtime run out a little bit. Because you'll notice they don't actually finish the song before Worf goes nuts and starts destroying everything. Instead, he sings for a period of time. Worf gets a little bit more and more upset. And then finally he loses it. From a creative perspective, they could have had that happen at any time. So... I, I like to think that they recorded, like, say, five, four minutes, however long the song actually is, and then decided how long they needed the episode to run and then chopped it down to that point, and that's when Warp loses it. Just my opinion. Because that's what I would have done. <sighs> so, the Warp plot actually makes a weirdly large amount of sense to me, because the whole point is that Warp can't mourn properly. Klingons, as has been pointed out, tend to have a briefer grieving period. Because of the very nature of how they view death, their love affair with death, which is actually something that will be brought up later in this very season. So why is Worf so upset about this? Well, you could say, well, it's because, you know, he's not a Klingon. He's been raised Federation. Yet, no, Worf has always been an embracer of Klingon ideals and concepts. So why exactly is it that it's bothering him so much? That's a nice little puzzle piece, and it just kind of sits there until we realize that the whole point is that Jadzia died badly. One of the really important parts of Klingon culture is that a death has to be a good death. Now, <laughs> what I find most interesting is that that makes a weird amount of pragmatic sense, of tangible sense, when you have an entire society built around killing and war and conquest. Trying to ensure that everyone actively seeks a good death helps to enforce the artificial code of ethics, that is to say the external honor or fake honor that the Klingon culture runs on. But what if someone dies a bad death through no fault of their own? This is actually something that's been discussed in other forms of fiction as well, to wit, uh, is some dwarven cultures in some fantasy settings, they have very specific rules for how you go to what afterlife, depending on how you died. And there's some understandable gray area in there, which tends to lead to some dilemmas and some debates and blah, 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 blah. So, what we have here is a built-in establishment of a religious... Uh, I hate to say the word religious, but I guess that really is the best word here. A, a religious code of laws, basically. Uh, you know, operations that you can do, things that you can accomplish in order to try and alter the circumstances after the fact. Now, I, I've got to explain this, but I have a really bad headache right now. Please forgive me. I'm trying to think through this. The point is, they ha it, it makes a lot of sense. If, if the Klingon afterlife exists, then it makes sense that they would want to make a way so that you could get into it. And if the Klingon afterlife doesn't exist, they would want to build in a way to their societal foundation that you can fix a bad death. Otherwise, every bad death would cause a lot of bad blood, like it does with Worf. This is one death for one Klingon. Think about how many other bad deaths the Klingon culture would have to endure in order to be able to still function. Or how many it could endure, excuse me, not how many would it, or how many it could endure. My point being, from both a tangible and an intangible perspective, you can kind of see how the need for these rules of being able to fix the score after the game make a lot of sense. 
Thus, now we have to accomplish a great battle, and in so doing, earn her place in Stovakor. Now, what I love best about this is they think about approaching Admiral Ross, and they're like, we can't do that. I'd like to think Ross would be at least amenable to the concept. I mean, he might not jump on board with the idea, but Ross is a pretty chill guy, and a pretty understanding guy, and a pretty good admiral. If one of his commanding officers is having legitimate problems commanding because of this issue, I think he'd at least be willing to consider it. But, of course, they don't. They go to Martok, who understands completely, who they don't even have to explain it to. Martok is just like, look, I need our first officer to help me on a mission to get Jadzia into Stovakor. He doesn't even say what the mission is. Just, we're going to get Jadzia into Stovakor. That's the mission. Bam. And something about that really delights me. I also want to say something as a quick aside. It's weirdly refreshing to see the afterlifes, afterlives discussed in this manner in Star Trek. One of the things that always irritated me was when certain writers, especially in the TNG era, early TNG era, would get up on a soapbox and preach about how horribly, disgustingly awful having a belief system was. Now, <laughs> don't mistake me. There's been a lot of messed up crap done in real life in the name of religion. I'm not trying to say that that's not true. But it did get a little bit preachy, in my opinion. I prefer the approach of this episode, where they discuss it in a fairly neutral manner. And one of the people who's discussing it, Bashir, clearly doesn't actually believe any of this crap. And yet they so calmly, normally discuss, well, you know, maybe we need to get her into Stovakor. And, and meanwhile, Quark, who also believes in his religion with the, uh, what is it, the eternal treasure or whatever? We've shown this already on, on DS9. I can't think of the name of it. Please forgive me. We've already seen that Quark believes in his religion. O'Brien probably doesn't believe in anything either, but he just kind of goes along with it. Like, doesn't she want to go to the Trill afterlife instead of the Klingon afterlife? But she was like, no. No, she'd, she'd want this. Besides, and then he adds, I'm doing this to honor her memory. In short, whether or not the afterlife actually exists is effectively made irrelevant, which I kind of like that approach, because if it does exist, then we're doing our damnedest to get her in, and if it doesn't exist, then we're doing our damnedest to honor her memory. And I like that. Anyways, <clears throat> this is also interesting because we knew that Moore has several thoughts on whether or not Stovacor actually exists, and this is actually something I brought up in uh, Barge of the Dead, over on Voyager, which is also not only an excellent episode, but an episode that never definitively says whether Stovacor actually exists or not. So, you can kind of see the, the similar threads and parallels there. Moore's writing, I've said this before, several writers, you can see their fingerprints. It's, it's very obvious. But anyways, moving on. <clears throat> now, I'm going to laugh if he didn't write this episode. Let me scroll up a bit here. Did he write this episode? Nope. <laughs> Guess I'm an idiot. I stand by my statement. Uh, so, <clears throat> where was I? Um, Senator Kretak. That's the Kira plot. Now, Senator Kretak is interesting. She's a very um, politic Romulan. Very polite. Very willing to work with someone, understanding the concepts of cooperation in order to obtain their goals. Now, I say that very particularly, and the reason I started with the word politic rather than polite is the fact that Kretek comes across as someone who, she's not a good person, 
but she understands that you will get more more flies with honey than with vinegar, to, to, to use the terminology. In short, she is still out for herself and for her interests of her empire and her people. She's just trying to be nice about how she goes about it. You know, asking permission and reaching out for mutual cooperation to ensure cooperation rather than demanding it or otherwise being a typical Romulan. Now, we've actually seen Romulans like this before. In fact, one of the, the Romulans I was most reminded of, and I had to look up his name, was Nural. You remember him? No, of course you don't. He was the proconsul back during Unification Part 1 and 2. Now, this is funny to me, because both of them, again, both reminded me of this same concept. But what's even funnier is that both actually have a, another similarity between them, too. See, Kretek will show up later in an episode, because recurring, it's just... I've stopped pointing out every instance of recurring, because it's just it's just a thing from now on. We're, we're officially in recurring land, <laughs> and I love it. Um, but I point out that uh, because Kretek is going to be replaced by another actress in a future episode, inter em nim and I'm going to look up how to pronounce that later. And she's, and it's not deliberate, it's just because they couldn't get a hold of the original actor. Neral has also been portrayed by different characters. In fact, in that exact same episode, Neral will show up portrayed by a different actor. That's a funny coincidence, and I just had to share that one. Both, char both Romulan characters who are perceived in a similar manner both got a char uh, an actor replacement in the same episode. Anyways. I do also like... Uh, how do I phrase this? The overall idea of the Romulans reaching out for the idea of having a hospital and setting up military emplacements on said hospital. All of that makes sense to me because it's a very Romulan way of doing things, isn't it? They do actually need the hospital, assuming it is a hospital for real, and they could actually make good use of having a, a medical facility here so close to the front lines. Remember, as I've said many times, Bajor is basically next door, interstellarly speaking, to Cardassia. So this is as close to the front lines as we really get, not counting the recent conquest of mobile weapons platform land. I forget the name of it. They, they mentioned it last episode. They mentioned it this episode, too. <clears throat> so this is very close to the front lines, is what I'm trying to say. So, yeah, having a fully equipped medical facility here totally makes sense. Uh, but, but, why just get one thing when we can get two? And we could actually have a Romulan presence here. A Romulan presence that'll be nice and well-established for when the war's over, and thus much harder to excavate when the war's over. And now the Romulans have a bit of a stake in not only the Bajoran system, but in the wormhole. Now, what's funny about this is you can see how all of this makes sense from a purely political perspective. I would even be willing to say this isn't necessarily a hostile action on behalf of the Romulans, not a precursor to invasion or anything like that. Just more them establishing more presence and making sure that they have more direct influence over their interests going forward. It is also, of course, entirely possible that this is a precursor to invasion and war, so make of that what you will. Curious what you guys think on that matter, by the way. Anywho, <clears throat> meanwhile, back on Earth, so he has the vision, he's trying to find the person. They have this really cool program of trying to combine pieces of a face to make a facial recognition thing. Just a neat little thing. I just wanted to comment on that briefly. And Joseph comes in, and this is when we f he mentions uh, this face. Oh, I refuse to talk about it. Absolutely refuse to talk about it. Now, I just want to make something very clear. 
What I like about this episode is it really clearly shows both Joseph and Sisko's perspective very well. Joseph has obviously gone through a lot of crap, and this is obviously an extremely painful memory for him. He got no closure on this. In fact, he's going to get closure on this next episode. That's part of why he goes along with the ex expedition at the end, right? This is something that was just... I want you to imagine for a moment, to really put you into his shoes for a second, I want you to imagine you found someone, and it just clicks. You two Tetris together perfectly. And you have a wonderful life, and you spend several years together, actually closer to like a year and a half from what I understand of the timeline, of, of just a year and a half of bliss, and then she just vanishes one day. No word. No nothing. Just gone. Picture what that feels like. Now. <laughs> now imagine you live on Earth, which... Okay, I, I know that sounds like a weird statement. Imagine you live on Earth in uh, in Star Trek, in modern Star Trek. The, the paradise, the realm supreme, right? Imagine you live there and that happens to you and you can't even find her because she has just vanished so thoroughly. And imagine you spend time and effort and work for months trying to track her down and you finally do and you find out she died in an accident before you could even reach her. Can you even picture what that would feel like? You never knew. You don't understand what happened. You have no comprehension of that. What are you going to do about that? Bury it, which is exactly what he did. You'll notice that Jake mentions the photo. He found it in storage when he was moving stuff around. That's not a photo that's out on display. That's not a photo Joseph looks at periodically. No, that photo is over there in the closet. I have a few photos like that myself. I'm sure some of you do as well. So, you can see, and again, wonderful praise to the actor whose name I can't think of. Wonderful praise to uh, Brock Peters, because he manages to sell the perspective of someone who is who this wound is still open. There is still a raw pain here. This is like 30 years ago, and it still hurts. He does a good job of that. But at the same time, you can tell how he acknowledges how it was wrong to never open up about this to Cisco, which brings me to Cisco's perspective. He, his, the, the woman who raised him was not his biological mother, and he'd never even heard of his biological mother. And you could see how that's just, what? You never told me? You never explained that to me? Joseph gives his reasons, but he doesn't really excuse himself. He just apologizes and says, we make decisions in life. Sometimes they're right, and sometimes they're wrong. He rather forthrightly admits that he is wrong and doesn't try to really justify it. He just explains himself and apologizes. It's a wonderfully human scene. And as usual, the two actors just have, they just gel wonderfully together. Then things get interesting because he brings out the necklace, <laughs> which has Bajoran script on it. Now, we, the viewers, not knowing, walking into this, we're already thinking, okay, why would the prophet send him a vision about his mother, his biological mother? Surely there's something to do with that, right? Well, yeah, actually. But the fact that this biological mother gave him a necklace with Bajoran script on it, which talks about the orb of the emissary, which no one's ever heard of before. Well, I believe the old saying is, the plot thickens. Now, this is even more amusing, because then... <laughs> then the Paw Wraith cultist comes up and stabs him in an attempt to kill him. You know, I had a thought. Cisco mentions he had to meet with Starfleet security. I, I have a feeling 
This might be one of the only violent crimes that's happened on Earth in decades. I mean really violent crimes. I don't mean like they got into a scuffle or a bar fight or some ensign punched some other ensign. No. I mean someone tried to stab someone else with, with intent to kill. How often do you think that kind of crime happens on that Earth? Now, that of course helped to sell that scene. I, I remember that scene because I remember Mum and my reaction to it. She physically just... Like she was so shocked by it. And I asked her about it later and she said... That's on Earth. That happened on Earth. Think about that for a second. I mean, DS9 has done a lot to show that not everything is absolutely perfect on Earth, but that is still paradise. You look out on the, the view of Starfleet headquarters and you see paradise. No crime, no poverty, no war. <laughs> Think about it. This is kind of just... Huh. It also serves, if I might be so bold, as an indication of exactly how far the paw rates are willing to go, and as a way to help establish the paw rates and their role in the overall story as part of the spiritual plot. It's one thing to say, he's a hate-filled, malicious creature. It's another thing to do something like this. Although, again, I'll talk about this next episode. Looking at my notes here. Uh, right, so... That's basically it. We, you know, that's the conclusion of all three arcs. But then someone peeks through the window. And it's like, who the heck is that? You know, I need to look up how to pronounce her name. Because I've always said Nicole DeBoer. And I'm not actually sure if that's how it's pronounced. But she's there. And she peeks in. She's like, hi, I'm here to see Ben. Oh, of course. It's, yeah, you, you almost missed him. Ben's like, who are you? Yeah, it's me. Dax. <laughs> I've decided to talk about this here, and then I'll share my further thoughts on it in the future. Because one of the things I have heard many times is the Jadzia versus Ezri argument. Now let me go ahead and say very bluntly that I don't think that's a fair argument to even have. It's kind of like saying Kirk versus Picard. What? It's never been Kirk versus Picard. They're different. They're different captains with different styles and different approaches. Which one you prefer is up to you. But there should be no verses, in my opinion. And that's kind of my point. I feel like some members of the fandom, and I have seen some rather heated arguments about the Ezri versus Jadzia thing. I, I don't think that should even be said that way. I think that's, that's the wrong mentality. If you prefer one or the other, that's fine, and that's up to you. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on why you prefer one or the other. But let's be fair, it's also not really a fair comparison, because we have six years of one and one year of the other. I will say that Miss Nicole, I'll look up how to pronounce her last name later, she certainly has a much harder task here, because... Well, Terry Farrell, I've said this before, she didn't really know how to act early on. She hadn't found her footing. It was her master class or whatever, like Rene Bergeron says. But she, over the course of the six years, she developed and grew and, and became a fantastic actress and did a really lot of good with her role. Nicole, she has to just kind of make it work. She doesn't get that. She gets the one year. She's got, like, an episode to find her footing as an actress. So she has to already be in that headspace and be in that position. And, well, she also has a harder role to play. She doesn't have to play someone with seven billion life years of experience. She has to play someone who, did, who wasn't supposed to be joined. 
who is still having trouble with the joining. And while she has those memories in the background, they have not properly merged with her like a true joining should. It could be argued that Esri Dax is more like Esri, Dax, an additional separation between the two. And that's going to be a part of her character and something she has to handle. We'll even have a couple episodes specifically devoted to her uh, in, as we do the build-up to the finale. Which makes sense. You have a brand new character. Of course you want to do something with her. I also want to mention Doctor Who. Now the parallel here should be obvious, but on the off chance I have to say it out loud. With someone like Dax, they always had the background option to go ahead and have someone else play Dax. In fact, they did this semi-frequently when occasionally the symbiote would go into someone else, which you know leads to some interesting circumstances. I have argued before many times that... Well, let's just say that they never definitively say what exactly the separation is between symbiote and host. I, I used this analogy earlier. You know, you've got one half, you get the other half, and so combined they form something different. Um, but they don't, as a consequence of this, Esri Dax is more or less portrayed as an entirely separate entity, as she should be, which of course would be true with any new Dax, which also, again, kind of parallels the Doctor Who thing. In fact, I actually saw a fanfic once that posited the idea that the Time Lords were actually just a very specifically advanced form of Trill. Yeah, I don't buy it either, but it was an interesting read. This was a while ago. <clears throat> we'll see exactly how she does, but I wanted to give this opinion going forward. I think... <sighs> I have to admit that while I like both characters, I can't, like I said, I can't think of it in a versus sense. They're so different to me that it's hard for me to say even which one I prefer. Because Jadzia Dax was comfortable and calm and completely in control. She was someone who was very understanding, acknowledging of who she was, who wasn't afraid to be vulnerable, and who wasn't afraid to be strong. She was, I hate to use the word seasoned, but I think it's a good word for her. And she portrayed that weight very adequately. Esri is almost the exact inverse of that. She has no certainty and no confidence, has no idea what she's doing. And there's a vulnerability about her. There's an uncertainty about her, which makes her, I don't want to say more endearing, but it, let's just say it definitely hits the more protective aspects of my personality to see someone like her. Because... Esri's the kind of person you just want to give a big hug and be like, it's okay, it's okay. It's going to be all right. Jadzia is the kind of person you want to headbutt. In a good way. Like, hey, Jadzia. Pog. Like, she'd get along with the Krogan, you know what I'm saying? So, it's hard for me to say which one I prefer, because I'm not sure I do. If you, if you put a gun to my head, I'd probably go ahead and say Jadzia. But I would also say that, that a lot of that is because of exposure. Six years is a lot of time compared to one. And so she simply has more camera time going for her. We will see how much, if at all, that opinion changes. Because I, I, the reason I'm saying this up front is, well, I haven't watched season seven in quite a while. Uh, little under a decade at this point. Like eight years, nine years, something like that. It's, it's been a little bit. So we'll see if my opinion changes going through season seven this time around. Because if I'm being honest, by memory, I don't actually like season seven all that much. So... Hope you've enjoyed these thoughts. It's time to go ahead and move forward into part three of 
the Dax arc. I don't know what to call it. The Prophet's arc? I mean, this is all about the spiritual plot, really, isn't it? So we'll see how the spiritual plot goes forward next time.